Well, we are in campaign season. Don't you love it? I know many of you are probably really excited to have the wonderful political ads back on television. If you're like me, you're probably using your DVR to record as many of them as you can so you can watch them in the off season. And before long, the wonderful robocalls will begin. You may want to leave them on your answering machine or your voicemail so you can prove that all these famous people called you. Just to make you feel at home, my name is Jim Hill and I approve this message. <laughs> Seriously, no matter what your political affiliation, don't, sometimes don't you just want to say, stop it. Stop it. I read an article about all the nasty campaign ads. Some are referring to them as fact-based lies. They may have a small kernel of truth, but when the ad is finished, it is so distorted, so out of context, and so misleading that it is essentially a lie. Others may not include any truth at all. Why do politicians use these ads? Why are the ads so negative? And why is politics so messy? Now, I know from reading American history that politics has always been a pretty tough game. I visited the museum in Washington a few years ago and reviewed the history of political ads. But sometimes I wonder what all the negative ads say about our society. Politicians and campaign managers say they use the ads because they work. Because they work. You see, it seems that it's easier to tear down your opponent than it is to sell your own qualifications or your own ideas for addressing our nation's problems and challenges. But even with all of that and all the mud that's a part of the political system, I would not be willing to give up on our First Amendment freedoms. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of people to peacefully assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. None of us want to live in a country where we do not have these cherished freedoms, including the freedom of speech. Maybe the political rhetoric says as much about us as it does the politicians. I mean, if we demanded more honesty in the political ads, if we demanded more genuine debate on the issues, if we demanded more transparency in political campaigns, maybe we'd get it. Now, I know you have to be a pretty serious optimist to think that's possible. I hate to tell you, Neither Republicans nor Democrats are the answer to all of our problems. So what is a Christian to do? What does God expect of us? Let's look at what Jesus said as we continue to examine the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus made it clear in our text last week that his mission 
is not to do away with the Old Testament. Instead, he wants to fulfill it. He wants to fill it full of new meaning. He's talking about the Mosaic Law. He says it will remain in force until heaven and earth pass away. He says that unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now the scribes and the Pharisees kept all 613 laws meticulously. So how can anyone's righteousness exceed the righteousness of those who have studied the law and have interpreted it for the people? In today's text, Jesus explains what he means by that statement. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He explains that their righteousness is not adequate. And Jesus points to the commandments and then he suggests something new. He says, you have heard that it was said, but I say, I tell you. That pattern continues throughout the passage. In fact, it continues beyond the text that we've read this morning. So what does Jesus mean by the word but in our, trans in our translation? What is the comparison that Jesus is drawing? Now we may be tempted to see this as a contrast of replacement, that somehow Jesus is looking at the commandment and saying, yeah, I've got something better than that. We might think that he's implying that the law was inadequate and, there, and therefore no longer applies. We might think he's sharing a new set of commandments to replace the outdated ones. But none of that would be accurate. And all of it would ignore Jesus' statement that his teaching would not destroy the law and the prophets. Instead, he makes it clear that he is not replacing the commandments, but is in fact strengthening and enlarging them. He invites us to dig deeper into the commandments as we seek to discover their true meaning and their power to transform our lives. He invites us to explore the kingdom of God. You see, the people of Jesus' day, pretty much like people in our day, had figured out a way to interpret the commandments in a way that they could keep. It fit their lives better. The Ten Commandments forbid the act of murder. So Jesus teaches that it is insufficient just to avoid murdering someone. Some kinds of anger and insult can themselves be a form of violence. To be angry with a brother or sister makes one liable of judgment. But then Jesus goes even farther. He says that reconciliation is a requirement before coming to God at the altar. Before worship, we have to deal with our anger and our broken relationships. When we come to worship in the midst of broken relationships, 
we violate the spirit of the commandment. What if broken relationships with neighbors and family and friends are more than just human barriers? What if those broken relationships reflect our relationship to God? What if the opposite of murder is not just avoiding killing someone, but a genuine restoration and reconciliation? The truth is, the command not to murder extends way beyond the taking of a life. What if it means we reject any effort or any action that nurses anger, that attacks someone's character, or destroys their reputation? Do you get it? Do you understand what Jesus is saying? Ridiculing, demeaning, or name-calling someone is not cute, it's not smart, and it's not strong. It's childish, and it's sinful. It's wrong. We shouldn't do it, and we shouldn't admire those who do it. It's wrong. The next commandment that Jesus clarifies is the prohibition against adultery. Jesus makes it clear this command goes well beyond a single act. It has to do with our entire approach to relationships. Avoiding adultery is not enough. Even for a man to look at a woman with a lustful eye is unacceptable. You see, the lustful gaze becomes an obstacle to authentic community precisely because it treats the other as a mere object instead of a child of God, someone made in the image of God. You know, for most of human history and in much of the world today, women are still treated as second-class citizens at best and as objects or property at worst. Only a hundred years ago this year was the 19th Amendment passed that gave women the right to vote in our own country. And even in our nation, we have not adequately addressed the problem of violence against women. If nothing else, the Me Too movement has made that painfully obvious. Jesus says the lustful eye is so serious that it would be better to gouge out the eye than to allow it to cause someone to stumble. You see, he encourages us to discard anything in our lives that tempts us to turn away from God. This call to faithfulness is not just a way to preserve marital commitment. It is also a recognition that we need healthy relationships with everyone. We owe it to one another to see and treat our neighbors as if they bear the image of God because every one of them does. We are all made in the image of God. You know, in many ways, The next commandment is closely tied to the one on adultery. Divorcing a wife was easy for a man in Palestine. 
In fact, this commandment was essentially directed to men in the male-dominated world of Jesus' day. A man could simply write his wife a certificate of divorce without cause. Jesus' point here is marriage is sacred. God has made man and wife one flesh. Now he allowed it for divorce on the grounds of unfaithfulness, but he wanted us to take marriage seriously. Seriously. Far from merely seeing women as property to be coveted by men, Jesus' teachings on adultery and divorce reinforce the dignity of women, and it warns against the culture of male privilege. In the first century, most women were completely dependent upon their fathers or their husbands for their daily livelihood, for their very existence. To be used and discarded for another's sexual desires had serious repercussions. A woman who had been seduced brought great shame upon her family. A woman who had been raped or considered damaged goods. For young women, the ability to marry well was jeopardized. For those who were married, there would be a threat of divorce. Wives could be cast aside for ridiculous reasons like burning the bread. In contrast to the world where women were treated like property, Jesus included women in his circle of disciples and friends, followers. Jesus called his followers to a life of faithfulness. Faithfulness. The last of our, you have heard it, that it was said, statements in the text for today calls us to be honest in our communication. In Jesus' day, as in ours, a person swore an oath to guarantee that what one said was truth. But they had developed this system of oaths that allowed them essentially to skirt the truth, depending on what kind of oath they made. There is so much dishonesty in our world today. So much twisting and manipulating of the truth to make it fit our views and our goals. So much lying. My personal conviction is that the distance and apparent safety of social media have made it even worse. Because we can post and repost things we know are not true or at the very least we have not checked to see if they are true. But cleverly created alternative facts do not magically become truth. Just because everyone tells lies does not justify lying. In fact, no end justifies dishonesty. And it's not just a problem out there, it's a problem in here with us. The old saying said, if you always tell the truth, you do not have to remember what you said. 
Jesus says we should always tell the truth. When we do that, there's no, no need to take an oath. A truthful person is consistent with what he says. Maybe Jesus was saying something like James did later. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just tell the truth. You see, Jesus is still teaching his followers about the kingdom of heaven. It's not just some distant reality. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he called upon his followers to live in it. To live into the kingdom of heaven. This kingdom demands radical discipleship. So that even a way, the way that a person thinks is transformed by the power of God. We see and experience the world in a brand new way. Although Jesus' teachings on anger and adultery and divorce and oaths might seem like unrelated teachings, they're really not. They are all about the same topic. What does God's kingdom look like? It looks like faithfulness. It looks like respect. It looks like honesty. What does God expect from us? Jesus wants his followers to be people of integrity. People who are faithful to their promises. People who have no need to swear that they are telling the truth because they always tell the truth. They should be people who honor their commitments in marriage and respect the commitments of others. The women in their midst are not to be used as property and abandoned at will, but seen as fellow disciples. These followers... Jesus says, are the ones who are blessed. Blessed. They have discovered the kingdom of God. They've discovered it. You know, if, if we want to change the world, if we really want to change the world, then we must begin by letting God's Spirit change us. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we confess the fact that too much of the time we are more shaped by our world than shapers of it. Sometimes, Father, we live in the kingdoms of this world instead of the kingdom of God. I pray that your spirit would speak to us today, that you'd help us to see ourselves honestly, and that you'd help us to open our lives in a fresh way to the work of the Holy Spirit that he might continue to transform us 
so that we can live within the kingdom of God. Father, I pray in these moments of response that each of us will have the courage to be obedient to the urgings of your spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.